Hey guys, here are a few topics we're covering on TheRinger.com this week. We're covering the midterm election, Julia Roberts' new show Homecoming, and the worst person of the week on The Good Place. Also, make sure you check out the rest of The Ringer Podcast Network for more pop culture conversation. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show with some of the most interesting filmmakers in the world— Today we have a nice chat with a filmmaker named Julius Avery who made a movie called Overlord. Overlord looks like a war movie, sounds like a sci-fi movie, and ultimately feels like a horror movie. And I chatted with Julius, but before we get to Julius, I'm here with my pal Chris Ryan. Chris, what's up? What's up, man? Chris, I asked you to be here because I've been taunting you with Overlord for a couple of weeks now. (laughs) I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I know you love a horror movie. I don't know if you love a body horror movie. And this movie, which is produced by Bad Robot... And like I said, has is set during World War II, but ultimately starts feeling pretty damned gross. Kind of pushes the limits for what a mainstream movie can be, I think in a good way. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what makes a good, gory horror movie and kind of what is too far. So in your mind, what is the platonic ideal of this kind of movie? The Thing. Yeah, John Carpenter's The uh, Thing. So The Thing has atmosphere, it has eerie, it has... Are we the our, our own worst enemy? It's like is the enemy within stuff, but then it also has. We were doing an autopsy, and this guy's chest caved in, and an alien ate my doctor, <laughs> and that is you know one of the grosser things I think I'd ever seen up until that point. The first time I saw the thing, but is kind of the line, not the line that I draw it on, but it, it's body horror that works within. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone in the worst place for it to happen, which yes. is like this Arctic research center that they're stationed in in the thing. When you saw that movie, were you like, I, I don't want to watch this anymore? Or were you sort of oddly compelled no, by the grossness? You know, you know me so well, and yet, like, I think that you think I'm some sort of shrinking daisy. I, I, well, I, you don't I, like to work blue. It's well known that you have a Sean, certain... Sean, do you want to do this right now? Yeah, do like, want, okay. we're doing it. We we saw Tracy Morgan at the Apollo, like, <laughs> 10 years ago, make a very, very, very vivid description of his digestive tract. Right. And I was like, I could have done without that. And ever since then, it's like, I'm Julie Andrews to you. You you acted like a coward And in the night. meantime, I'm like, did you see the raid? That person gets his face cut <laughs> off his face. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but now I'm I'm sort of being pie. I dig it. I mean, like, you have to have a foil. But. It's a good bit. <laughs> I guess I'm I am interested though because it's a hard sell at times mm-hmm. to say like watch the most disgusting thing you can imagine. But there, I I still hard for me to kind of figure out what it is I'm responding to and why I like it. John Carpenter obviously has this incredible ability to create ambiance and atmosphere around things that are really ghoulish and intense and sort of like on the surface visceral. Most horror filmmakers can't do that. They, yeah. they can't. They can get one or the other. You know, they can do the Rick Baker effect or they can do something that's really creepy. Blending those two things together is difficult. When Julius and I were talking, he he cited the thing. I think he was reluctant to name too many classics sure. of the type. Movies like The Thing and, and you know, Cronenberg, uh, you mentioned before, you know, they did everything old school in the olden days. They didn't have CG. They had to do everything um, with animatronics and puppetry and because he didn't want to unfair be unfairly compared to those movies well it's tough now for directors because i think as soon as you start dropping references you just get put in a headline where it's like why this movie is this movie's stepchild yes yeah. and and overlord is a really cool movie and one of the things i liked about it was some of the surprise which i'm kind of spoiling here by even having this conversation with you and the conversation with him so i would encourage people to check it out but what do you, what is it about 
seeing that stuff that gets us excited? Well, I think that um, horror is about exploring that part of your mind that you try to keep out of out of reach, right? And so I think that we all know that our bodies are just these bags of blood anyway. <laughs> and so to imagine being put in that that situation, it's like the Quint scene and the Quint death in Jaws, right? It's like we we can have all these like slights of hand and it's in the dark and there's the fin and you don't really see it. But when you get down to it, that's what getting eaten by a shark looks like. Yeah, that's and true. It's like it's grotesque and like that it's all that stuff happens. And then I think what happens is certain directors can push past that moment and start to use the gore almost for lack of a better term, like a, a paint color that mm-hmm. they're splashing on a canvas. And I'm, I mean, I haven't had a chance to see Suspiria yet, but I mean, I'm sure that there's like elements of that in it where it's like the body and blood and terror and the, the, the fear of what your body contains can almost be this color that's being used in the, in the film. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think, you know, Suspiria and Overlord would be quite an intense mm-hmm. four hours of film going this weekend if you wanted to subject yourself to that. You know, the original Suspiria and the movies of Dario Argento specifically, I'm thinking of sort of Tenebrae, Profundo Rosso, the the slasher movies that he made. Suspiria is not a slasher movie, but the slasher movies he made do exactly what you're saying, yeah. which is they take violence and make it about color and what that how that color makes you feel. And those movies are literally one of those movies is called Deep Red. And that has a kind of metaphysical quality that, you know, you have to kind of reflect on those bags of blood that you're talking about that we all exist inside of. But also... Something that is almost spiritual about flesh versus spirit. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I like when movies do that. Um, do you have? A, is there a limit for you? Like, are you? Yeah, you, like I think Apostles right up at the edge of that. Okay, you know? and I think. Um, and you just talked to the the filmmaker, to Gareth Evans. Yeah, and he's he's a, a one of the most electrifying filmmakers we have. He made the, the the two raid movies, and he made this movie Apostle, which stars Dan Stevens as um, a guy looking for his sister who he thinks has been kidnapped by a turn of the century cult off like a an island in Wales. I, and Michael Sheen's in it. He plays this religious leader and they have these sort of medieval to- torture devices on this island that they use on you know non-believers and the torture scenes in that movie are excruciating like literally for the characters but for the viewer as well and you know i enjoy films that make me submissive i enjoy being overwhelmed by a movie but it's almost strange to be put in that situation where the torture or the horror of what's happening to somebody's body is the focal point. It's not just a, ca- a casualty of the action. It is the action. And I think that's where I start to sort of get a little squeamish, but I, I still think I can hang with it. There is an, a, kind of an additional subgenre of these movies. I'm thinking of the original Last House on the Left. I'm thinking of I Spit on Your Grave, mm-hmm. the original I Spit on Your Grave. There's a couple of more. I, particularly Strangers? Straw Dogs? Like that kind of thing? Straw Dogs, certainly. I was thinking more like... um Hmm. Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of considered the most grotesque and severe movie, in part because they use sort of real animals were killed during the making of it. There is like a, there's an over-the-line version of these movies that we don't really see anymore. I don't, I never got the impression that you were very interested in that stuff. No, not really. I, I, my interest in is like, is John Hurt having something explode out of his chest mm-hmm. because, you know, it's about what's happening in Alien, not just because I'm like, let's just run that back multiple times. Think about that. If the chestburster scene in Alien was just happening four times a movie or something as gross as that was happening four times a movie, it's the obscuring of that. I mean, you've really got my interest peaked about Overlord because 
the way it's being marketed with the ACDC score and kind of like guys on a mission and it it's sort of Inglorious Bastards meets a zombie movie, but you're making it sound way more like vivid than that. Well, you know, Julius used a phrase that I think is resonant and he said when I first read it, you know, halfway in, I, I, I wrote down a note. I said, and it was like completely bonkers, uh, Indiana Jones on acid. In some ways, that is very true. Um, it goes a little bit further beyond that. But if you think back to... Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example, it's actually quite a gruesome movie when you get down to the sort of Ark of the Covenant and the final scene there. And there are elements of that in this movie, for sure. There is something phantasmagorical about the whole thing. Um, let's just talk for a couple of minutes about David Cronenberg, who's sure. kind of the godfather of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Where do you stand on his movies? Deeply interested, but like not a, not a, a frequent watch. So anything from Existence to, oh, what was the J.G. Ballard? Uh, the Car Crashes. Crash. Crash, yeah, yes. right. Crash. Um, and obviously the fly and some of the, the more, you know, classic tales, but like, I'm not like constantly like we got to dial up some Cronenberg. I feel like he's like a better influence than he is a director for mm. me, even though I obviously respect his direction. Quite what a bit. about more like the history of violence, Eastern promises style? Love that shit. Yeah, yeah. That's more your stuff. Yeah. Okay, Chris, thanks for giving us a little bit of clarity into our own personal body horror. And now. We're oh, can I ask you one question? Of course. I was curious, where does this movie fit in with Bad Robot? Like what? Like is this? Do you see this as part of like not as part of the Cloverfield mythology? But like, it, well, it was, what do you think they're doing over there? It's it kind of interesting. It, that's a really good question. It was rumored to be a Cloverfield movie, and then ultimately it was not a Cloverfield movie. I think one of the interesting things about it is it's co-written by Billy Ray and Mark L. Smith, two very sort of yeah, Revenant high-minded and, yeah, Re, uh, Revenant Captain Phillips. Billy Ray wrote. You know, these are very respected. Oscar-nominated kinds yeah. of, of screenwriters, and it's a, not that kind of movie. It's, it's like a, a genre it's, movie. It's a midnight movie. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about it that way. Obviously, we think of Bad Robot, we think of mystery boxes. This is sort of a mystery box, but not really. It's more like The Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. where it starts out one way, and then the tone shifts, and then the tone shifts. And that is a very difficult thing to pull off. And I think Julius was successful. Um, and it's part of why I'm so interested in just kind of having this conversation right now. As far as the bigger bad robot scheme, I don't, what is the bad robot scheme? Right I don't know. Now? I was asking because I, you know, the news came out this week that J.J. Abrams was basically shopping for like a mega deal, like a, a deal. He was going around to studios to Disney, Warner's, Comcast, a couple of other these these companies and just saying, buy the whole thing. Like, let's go. I want to do theme park stuff. I want to do video games. I want to do music. I want to do movies, television, digital, like everything. And I, I don't see an Overlord theme park coming anytime no, soon. No, of course not. But like, I think that I felt like he was building something towards that. And before Star Wars, like it felt like he was like, I'm going to go create my own Lucasfilm. That is, it got its own universe of characters and maybe some overlapping stories and interlocking stories. And then when he went to Star Wars, he kind of took a divergence from that. And right. I wonder whether this is an effort to get back to that. But obviously with things like Cloverfield Paradox, there have been some hiccups. Yeah, I think it's a very difficult thing to ask. With the exception of J.K. Rowling and the essentially Wizarding World, we haven't really had somebody build something from whole cloth like in the last 25 years. for Avatar to be that, right? Yes, Avatar theoretically could have been, but there's just not enough product. Yeah. With Harry Potter, Rowling, and, you know, subscribe to Binge Mode if you're not right now, the world is so big. It's not just those original books. It's now the sequel books. It's the play. It's all of the films that came out. It's the new films that mm -hmm. are coming out. There's so much... IP uh, that you can build this world. Bad Robot doesn't quite have an interconnected universe yet. And you know that you need that to make this constellation of success. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm really fascinated to see because I just, we haven't seen a figure like him with this much pull, but sometimes when you actually look at the statue, you're like, oh, 
what, like, they're, they're kind of do a hit soon. They're kind of do, like, a major thing. Yeah, I mean, are you Manny Machado or are you Bryce Harper on the free agent market? Wow. You, know, you never can tell. Mallory Rubin, hold your head. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Now let's go to my conversation with director Julius Avery. Welcome to France. What happened here? Some questions don't have good answers. I'm really delighted to be joined by Julius Avery. Julius, thanks for coming in. Thank you. This is, uh, this is awesome. So Julius, uh, I saw Son of a Gun and I liked it. But when I saw this movie, I was caught completely by surprise. I didn't know this was the sort of thing that you could do or would do. And I'm just kind of wondering at the start, like, where did this movie come from and how did you get involved in it? Yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, did a film called Son of a Gun uh, that starred Ewan McGregor and Alicia Vikander. And uh, it was a crime drama set in Perth, West Australia, where I grew up. Um, and, uh, you know, I took that film to Hollywood, uh, to, to Los Angeles, um, and showed it to the studios. And Bad Robot... Uh, came to the Paramount screening and they um, thought it was cool and said, you know, come in and, and uh, you know, um, talk to us about what you want to do next. And Let me, let me interrupt yeah. you for a second. What is that like where you are sort of taking something that you've worked hard on and then kind of pitching it around town? What is that experience like? Um, well, whenever you finish a film and you give it, you know, you, you hand, it, hand it to the world, you know, you're really nervous, you know, um, you're really obviously want people to like it and people to understand where you're coming from. And, uh, and so it's kind of nerve wracking to let go of the baby and, and, uh, let it go off and into the world and become its own thing. You obviously, uh, want it to, uh, grow and healthy and, and to, uh, into someone that you, you love and respect and you want other people to respect and love, love that, that kid as well. But, uh, you know, for me going into bad robot for the first time was really kind of, I was nervous as hell. I yeah. mean, I'm going to meet JJ and the rest of the, the gang at Bad Robot. And, um, you know, they make big movies. They, it sounds like a cliche, but I'm, you know, a kid from the country, from Perth, Western Australia, and, uh, you know, so far removed from anything that I grew up with. And so, um, but as soon as I got in the room with JJ, he sort of just put me at ease, you know, and kind of, um, he's very disarming that way. He's, um, really makes you feel like you know what you're, you're, you're talking about. And, and, yeah, all that kind of pedestal stuff sort of gets thrown out the, the window as soon as you, you meet you meet JJ. Um, and we spitballed a few ideas um, around and um, he gave me the uh, uh, the script overlord and and said, take you know, check it out. Um, and, you know, when JJ says check out something, you obviously do. <laughs> did, did, did you go into that conversation with like, I've got 10 dream films I want to make and I'm going to pitch you all my, my ideas? And he says... That's great, but I feel like you would be able to crush this. I just went in and said, "Hey, listen, I'm open. I, I just don't want to repeat myself. I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't necessarily." I said, "Look, you know, this is the type of movie I want. I want to do uh, next. You know, this is the type of things I'm into, um, just broadly." And what were some of those things that you told? You know, me? I, I was I, my films, even my short films, have you know these these themes running through them. It usually involves like a young guy who's thrown into the deep end and um has to um you know you know basically sink or swim you know and uh, almost like a guy walking into bad robot yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh and so i knew that i wanted to uh explore that further and and so when i spoke about the things that i was into you know they said well we've got the script overlord and i was immediately drawn to the concept because it was completely different 
from what I had already done. I did a crime drama and this was like a World War II mashup of horror and sci-fi. And so I took it home and I read it and, you know, halfway in I, I, I wrote down a note. I said, and it was like completely bonkers, uh, Indiana Jones on acid. <laughs> 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 and uh, I still got that script. And the scripts are, the scripts are really, uh, really intimidating. They, they give you a script that's, on re- that's been printed on red paper so you can't copy it. And they also have like this uh, special um, wording on the front saying, you know, this, this script has been tagged with uh, a tracking device, yada, yada, yada. And I was like terrified that um, I had some sort of like, you know, Mission Impossible kind of self-destructing <laughs> script that would, uh, would, you know, catch on fire or something at some stage. But uh, it, so I – anyway, so I read the script and I, I immediately – dropped everything and said, clear the decks. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And I went after it hard and, and it took quite a bit of work to, to, uh, to get the film. And it was like many, many meetings and, uh, and, and, you know, getting on the same page and making sure that we're, that we're, you know, we knew what we, we had the same idea for the movie, but in terms of like just um, putting together something for the studio and, 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 and the pitch and everything, especially when you first starting out and you don't have a many films under your belt they they kind of put you through the ringer and and you know but it was all good it was all good um foundation work for for the film and it made me you know think about what i wanted to do with it and one of the first things that i when i read the opening pages which is this intense aerial battle sequence um we follow these world war ii you know, paratroopers as they're being dropped behind enemy lines and they've got to take out this radio tower in, in this small french normandy village and there's this huge aerial battle sequence and on the page it felt like you know something very intense and you know something like you know the the d-day landings in 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 uh in saber private ryan and i was like how the hell am i ever going to be able to match that mm-hmm. and and so i was like you know the first thing i came up with is like okay I've got to make it feel like we're riding shotgun with these with these paratroopers. I've got to make it feel really subjective. I've got to feel, make it feel like um, it's first person. And, and the first thing I came up with was this one that I'm not a very big believer in one unless they actually have, they serve the story. And in this case, it did. And I wanted to, because um, I wanted the, the subjective feeling to, uh, to resonate and is this I, the 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 falling out of the plane? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty amazing sequence at the beginning of the film that is shot entirely, seemingly from the perspective of the character that we spend the most time with. It's for me. It was like, how do you how do you keep keep it subjective and and as and and visceral and and uh, and immersive? And the long takes usually give you that sense of tension and sense of um, you know dread when you're trying to bail out of a, a plane that's you know caught on fire and you know that's falling out of the sky and 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 you know it was a it was a long like that was my initial note to myself that I wanted to try something that was completely bonkers and out there and when I first presented that to JJ he was like this is complete madness but <laughs> but uh you should go for it go go and do it and that's what JJ does he really once he hires you he empowers you as a filmmaker and he gets behind you and you know he really sort of you know, helps at a studio level, uh, convince, you know, people that 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds crazy what this director wants to do, but, you know, give him, give him the chance. And if it hadn't have worked, it would have been a completely embarrassing <laughs> uh, thing because we didn't have any coverage. We shot, we only shot, shot it one way. Wow. And so, you know, thank God it, it worked, worked out in the end. There, there are a series of things in this movie, and we can talk about some of them, that feel like sort of a filmmaker obstacle course, you know, like you are not only doing this subjective point of view at times, you're trying to make a movie with sort of three different genre elements all at once. You have this pretty young cast. How do you, like, was that part of the thinking of taking on the project was like, I want to push myself as far as I can? Because it does feel like almost like SAT questions for a director. Yeah, look, uh, this is not something that you can easily classify. It's not something you can go put into one box. It's like it's it's a mashup of, uh, you know, sci-fi, horror, action, and, you know, one of the things that I knew I would be kind of um, knowing going into this film, I would be protected by Bad Robot because that's what they do. They they like to take risks. They like to do things outside of the box. You know, when you go and see a Bad Robot movie, expect the unexpected. And JJ was always up for the, trying to, you know, create this completely Frankenstein bastard child uh, that that is Overlord. And But one of the things that we spent a lot of time getting right was the characters. We really wanted the characters to, to for, you, for, for you to love them. You know, JJ always talks about getting the audience to, to lean in. And I believe that you do that um, when you, when you love your, your characters, when they get dropped into hell, you, you kind of, you feel the jeopardy, you feel the risk, you feel the, the terror um, because you don't want to see them get hurt. When you don't care for, uh, a character, I feel like you you kind of drop out of the movie and you just you just sort of just sort of washes over you. So we spent a lot of time trying to thread that needle, and uh, we also uh, spent a lot of time getting the tone right, like trying to, even though this was the movie, you know, transitioned to something you know completely fantastical and fiction. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we we started off with a something feeling very real, and that was. Basically, because of tension, I wanted this is a this is a move full of tension, and it's got great action and, and body horror and so forth. But there's a lot of tension that's in the movie, and I and I feel like we we yeah, we try to set up early that anything could happen. You know, in the in the the trailer, you'll see a lot of these guys die in the first ten minutes, mm-hmm. and some of the characters that you that you you get to to love in the first ten minutes don't make it. Uh, and you, you know, it's, it's all to trying to get the tension. Like, you know, at any moment, one of these guys can die. I just think like when we get to the, to the horror elements, uh, in the movie, it makes it all the more horrific because it, we've grounded in that reality, if you will, even though what we're doing is completely fantastical and not med- medically possible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I, as I was watching it, I was like, this feels like, this is kind of a like thing you see on a poster, but it's like if David Cronenberg and John McTiernan made a Twilight Zone episode, like it has like all of these interesting disparate elements. When you were reading it, were you excited by that every time it kind of takes a slight shift? Yeah, I, I was excited by the the shifts. I, you know, my last film uh, starts off as a, a gritty prison drama, then it ends up transitioning into uh you know into a uh a, a kind of big heist movie and i liked when you know you f- you're constantly getting surprised inside a movie I, i'm not a big fan of um movies that are just very 
uh, one dimensional in the sense that they're just, just an action movie or they're just a sci-fi or they're just a horror. I'm very, very much into, um, the idea of, you know, mixing genres. Uh, you know, maybe it's because, you know, I, I've got, um, attention deficit order. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I hope you receive this as a compliment. This movie is very, very gross. Yeah. And in a way that is like very effective and fun and has at times kind of like a midnight movie quality. Mm. And I'm, I'm interested how you actually did that. And what was the balance of sort of the practical with the digital effects and all the things that you were trying to do to make people feel the visceral quality of the movie? Yeah, I, I look, we spent a lot of time putting a lot of attention into detail. Like, you know, we we don't have hordes of Nazi zombies. We have, you know few super soldier creatures whatever you want to call them um and we put a lot of time and effort into getting getting those guys being as scary and as cool as possible and i wanted to do the movie very in camera and practical so that includes like all the special effects makeup and action um you know stunts and uh why did you why was that important um i want i feel like when you get into cg it's a great tool. I think it's you know we use it in the opening sequence of the film to great to to good effect. I I feel, but for me, I like the my horror especially to be very visceral. Uh, I like to have I like to have a tactile reality, and you know I feel like you 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 can only get that from an analog experience. So they t- they talk about like this. Um, you know the un- uncanny valley, which is basically you know um, no matter how much time and effort you put into um, getting a CG shot right, um, the audience will always know there's something not quite right. And, and I think it takes you out of out of the moment. Um, and so, you know, we had a very, um, apart from, you know, s- some small sequences in the movie, everything was very practical and in camera. So the, the horror elements um, for me had to match everything else we were doing. So we did uh, something really cool. Like I, you know, Movies like The Thing and, and you know, Cronenberg, uh, you mentioned before, you know, they did everything old school in the old days. They didn't have CG. They had to do everything um, with animatronics and puppetry. And and so we did that with our movie. We did a, um, the moment in the movie where one of our soldiers snaps his neck back so violently that it breaks it. Incredible sequence. And uh, thank you. And, you know, we did we did that with, you know, old school puppetry and animatronics and then we, we use CG, CG to just do cleanups and so forth. And, you know, I just don't think the audience would have get – they wouldn't get that gross feeling you're talking about before, mm-hmm. uh, that thing that hits you in your stomach, that primal thing where you just sort of curl up into yourself. I don't think you would get that if it was CG. It's a really fun feeling though, that sort of like stomach ache meets laughter that, you know, you're really kind of tapping into in the movie. Did you watch a lot of movies that had these different elements beforehand? Do you have a lot of points of reference or are you the kind of person that just sticks to the script? I mean, obviously you watch, I've, I mean, I'm, I watch a lot of movies. I've been, I used to go to the video store when I was a kid and, and, um, uh, I'm sort of giving away how, you know, my age here, but like we had an account at our local milk bar we call them in australia um like grocery store i guess you call them and my mum would you know i had to ride on my bike it was like a five five mile ride to get to the to the, that's far to, yeah I, I lived in the middle of nowhere uh and uh it was also doubled as a video video store and uh, i also had fish and chips and kind of um uh you know and, and milk and bread and anyway so my mum would get send me off to get milk and bread 
And, you know, the deal was if I was going to ride it, do a round trip of 10 miles <laughs> that I would, I could get some, uh, I could get like five weeklies. Okay. And, uh, and so I used to, I used to be able to put weekly, like get five movies and put it on mum's account. And the guy there used to let me get whatever I wanted. So like I would, you know, I was 10 years old and I was like, you know, get watching things like Mad Max and, you know, all, all the cool R-rated movies that um, you not necessarily like kids today, you know, have access to, but they have a lot of access to other things. But anyway, uh, I'm dreading that my, my son is 10 and he's a huge um, Fortnite player. Yeah, you need to watch the parental controls on yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so, uh, um, so you know i my um my experience was you know uh with this film was like just sort of you know it's all in the back of your subconscious you know as you, you know, but if your formative years um as i just looked, went what would the 10 year old kid in me you know love what would what would he like be like um you know grossed out by or, or get off on and so that's that's sort of you know how i approached everything and and john carpenter is probably um, the master of threading threading action, drama, and sci-fi on horror. And so, you know, he was a big influence on mine. Um, you know, even, you know, one of my favorite films, even though it's not totally this right for this movie, it was, you know, Big Trouble in Little China. That mm -hmm. was, you know, my favorite. But like uh uh the other thing that really drew me to this to this um this movie because it's a war movie, um, as well as an action sci-fi horror. And my grandfather um, was in the World War II in the African campaign, and he took a lot of pictures. He had like um, he had a couple of photo albums, you know, filled with his uh, his adventures. And he, uh, you know, used to, I sit on his knee, and he used to take me through the pictures. And and you know, he also had these other things like bayonets and disarmed grenades and bullets and stuff, which was us completely, you know, as ten as a as a young young. Kid, I was completely obsessed with, but he used to tell me that his, his stories. And one of the things that really impressed on me, even at an early age, that there was something something big had, had happened. You know, it's much bigger than him, much bigger than me. And I think that's where the journey began for me, and that's where it all the interest started. And I always wanted to make a war movie. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm always curious with the filmmakers if they have kind of a checklist of the kinds of films that they want to make, especially in, in their first few. If there is a significant genre difference, like what are some of the other kind of categories of movies that you're interested in tackling? I've always wanted to do. Uh, I've always wanted to do a big space opera. It's something that I've. Um, I read that you may be doing that. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I'm hard at work on uh, on on Flash Gordon right now, which I can't really talk about. But it's it's it's. I've always wanted to propel a guy that's way way in over his head into space, <laughs> you know, and and see what happens. Uh, and what, why is that theme so resonant for you? Why do you keep coming back to it? Um, I don't know. Like I, uh, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I grew up uh, in the country, and you know, I was I got into a lot of trouble as a, as a kid, and I used to hang out around with the wrong crowd, and uh, and get into all sorts of trouble. And you know, Jerry Cam, my short film, is sort of loosely based on one of my stories. Um, and I, I don't know. Like um, I knew that I guess the moral compass of like a, you know a character who can sort of be completely corrupted um in that environment but then at the end of it fights through it and doesn't end up uh on the evil side of the line has been something that i've struggled with as a, as, as a person as, as as much as um you know growing up as as much as uh, is it my the theme in my movies you know i um grew up in a pretty rough 
crime-riddled town. And Son of a Gun is very much loosely based on my story, even though I didn't hang out the side of helicopters and machine guns and so forth. You know, the relationship in that. How many heists did you pull? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, um, dozens, dozens <laughs> by, by, the, by the time I was 12. Uh, no, uh, the relationship in that film, Brenton Thwaites plays a young guy who get, you know gets taken under the wing of Ewan McGregor in prison and then they go on this wild trip into the gold fields in, in Western Australia and do this heist. And it's about a kid that's searching for a family, you know, searching for um, a kind of a parent. And my dad, my dad died when I was very young. And, uh, you know, so I was always searching out father figures in all the wrong places. <laughs> and uh, I, grew, I grew out of it, thank God. You know, I ended up by getting um, invited to go to an art school in, in the city and when I was 15 and, uh, and it, it saved me. You know, a lot, of my, a lot of my friends who I grew up with are either in prison or dead. So that, that really kind of informed the, uh, the story of Son of a Gun. And I don't really want to get sort of typecast into any sort of one genre. I just know that I'm probably going to just keep on telling the same sort of story, but in a different setting, a different kind of fashion. I, I don't know. I, I've, got, I've got a lot of shit to work out. You know, um, it's, it's a very, very expensive form of, um, you know, therapy. <laughs> high grade, high tension therapy. No, that's, I mean, that, that's so, that's the story of so many filmmakers though, you know, trying to find new ways to kind of understand how they feel about the world and using different formats. How did you actually make yourself into a filmmaker? Like I had never heard of you. I hadn't seen your shorts before Son of a Gun. Son of a Gun kind of came out of nowhere. And I think I was really just made aware of it because it had the A24 connection. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I know yeah. that brand and I know the people that work there. So I'll, I'll be interested in that. But it does feel like you kind of came out of nowhere. And obviously you come, you come from Australia. But how did you make yourself into a professional filmmaker? Do you want the short story or the long story? <laughs> well, like, do you have a medium version? Uh, all right, a medium version. Uh, so um, when I, where I grew up, there was uh, no access to video cameras. You know, it was in that really tricky time between Super 8 and, you know, and uh, video cameras. And I was in the sort of dead zone where where it wasn't really around. But my mother um, bought me for my 10th birthday a stills camera and promised to develop a roll of film every month. Uh, so... Developing film was expensive back then, you know. I had to, and also it was like it wasn't like the immediacy you have now. You take a selfie and you can check it out. It took bloody a week of getting to come back or ten days. I like that you yeah. also had these all these bargains with your mother, you know, like getting the videos <laughs> yeah. and getting the film oh, yeah. developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex yes. Um, you know, you can't let your parents take advantage of you. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I used to uh, take pictures, and at the first, I was really shit. I was so bad at it. I, everything was out of focus. Everything was like blurry and and um, overexposed and no good. But eventually, mum never never gave up on me and and just let me keep on taking you know developing these expensive uh, rolls of film, and uh, and eventually I I sort of got more into it, and I loved it more than I liked because I I was I was you know doing a lot of drawing and painting at that stage and I got a, got accepted into an art school. It took didn't take me long to to find the photography part of the uh, the campus and I just loved the immediacy of it because I could instead of taking weeks for the, the the film to come back now it was like you know I was been I was able to develop my own film and instantly get gratification and I was always too impatient for painting you know oils takes forever and and I just loved it. And then I uh, then I found out they had a, a you know um, video 
uh, uh, department and film department. And I, and I took out video cameras and followed all my friends and, you know, who were skaters and followed them around. And at first they were all acting like gooses for the camera, but then they got so bored of me that they just started just acting naturally. And that's when I was like, there's the magic. That's, you know, I didn't quite realize what was happening at the time, but the magic was in the, the fact that they, I was just being a fly on the wall and they didn't take any notice of me. The, 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 them playing up for the camera was, wasn't as amazing as what they were doing when they just forgot that I was there. Were you thinking you would do documentary work then because of that? Um, I didn't, I didn't really have a plan, man. I was like, yeah. you know, 16, uh, <laughs> but I, I, uh, I just got off on it. And I uh, ended up by going to getting into film, into film school and then I did a, uh, I did a short film which got funded by the state government called Little Man and that then got me into one of the top film schools on the East Coast. So it got me out of Western Australia, which I've always wanted to do. I never I hated where I grew up. I sort of hate love it now, but growing up I certainly didn't have any love for Western Australia, but I, I, I love it now. Um, looking back on it, I have fond memories as well as bad ones. But uh, so I went to VCA film school and it was great. It was so amazing to be around a bunch of other filmmakers. You know, the teachers were okay and, and you know, I had all these big hopes and dreams for what I would learn there. But at the end of the day, it was just about hanging out with other filmmakers. And it was the first time I really did that in a very intense way because I was living away from home and, and I got to, uh, you know, go into a pressure cooker situation where we had to do, you know, a film pretty much every month, you know, and, and, and you had to just churn them out. And in my class, I had uh, Adam Arkapoor, who's gone on to shoot, you know, True Detective season one and God knows what else he's. Yeah. And Justin Gazelle was in my class as well, who, uh, you know, did Macbeth and and uh, and other great films. And, and um, What a luminous uh, yeah, it was, group of it was, it was great because we were like, we're all super competitive. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, when you go into a movie and you're like, fuck. <laughs> oh man, I'm you got you get jealous, you know. Well, I probably not in the same way that you do, but sure. Yeah, I I like I'm like oh my god, you you did it. You 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 know, you've blown my socks off and um what the you know, how am I ever going to top that? Yeah. You know, fuck. So um anyway, so um Justin did that with a short film uh, that got into Cannes in his first year uh, and and I was like, you bastard and uh and then um the next year i ended up by getting into can and and so um i don't know it was like he's a super competitive guy like his father was like a um tried he was trying to make him to tennis prodigy like and his brother who's jed who are now i work with jed jed gazelle who did oh, my yeah. score on okay. uh on son of gun and uh, overlord uh but anyway it was so it was really great to be around all these really um great other filmmakers and we bounced off each other and it was it was a great experience and then I won can and uh, just breezing past that one. That's a pretty big deal. <laughs> uh, with Jerry can and uh, that opened up a lot of doors. I got a, I got you know representation in in in, in town and was and, your was your aspiration then and even among your classmates? What did everybody want to be Hollywood filmmakers? Was there was it more like we'll make films in Australia? Uh, no, fuck, we wanted to be the greatest auteurs of all time. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we like um, you know I've always w- wanted to make action movies you know that's mm-hmm. that's that's always been my goal like you know because that's what i loved growing up you know watching and uh uh i had a, a bumpy ride like after can i had a, a film that fell fell over and i had all the money in place it was very much like um romeo and juliet uh set in the desert it was a full-on really dark gritty tale 
and that f- and had all the money in place, but then you know the funding body down in Australia said no to it because it's you go through evaluation, it's all, yeah, and so it crushed me because I had all this momentum, and then I was like, "Fuck, what do I do now?" And then uh, and then I just went, I picked myself up, sobbing mess that I was, and wrote "Son of a Gun," and I took the 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 same story that I keep bloody recycling and put into that, but made it a much more commercial kind of venture. And uh, and it ended up by getting funded, and Ewan McGregor read it, and he was a real advocate for me. And and um, when he said yes to the, to the movie, pretty much it all just was a domino effect, and sort of just it happened really quickly. Did you get a sense of what what why Ewan responded to it and said, "I'll I'll take a chance on this person who hasn't made a full length, who hasn't done something like this mm. before." Um. Yeah, I bribed him with. Uh, <laughs> I, I no, I I uh, I wrote him a letter, and the letter was a very personal letter um, to him. It was basically about my childhood and growing up, and it was my and the relationship that uh, that relationship that was you know I grew up um, with in my life was very similar to the one that's in the in the in the script, and so I think I just went in with um, putting everything on the table. And was just like I'm all in, and I think you know actors have to be all in all the time. Like they put everything on the line. Like they're in front of the camera. I can hide behind the camera, and you know they're putting their face on a big forty foot screen. They're throwing themselves out there, and I, I guess I just wanted to like from the beginning just throw myself out there. And and if I got laughed at, or if I got like you know judged, so be it. But it paid off. Um, he he responded to it, and he read like he read it. I sent it on the. F- Friday and I got a response on Monday and said he wants to talk and so it was um, life's crazy yeah it was it was crazy it was like mind bending um, experience the whole thing setting aside Flash Gordon you know how do you figure out what you want to do next now that you've had this sort of big Hollywood studio experience do you like working in this atmosphere or this is this the kind of thing you want to continue to do yeah I I, I want to keep making studio movies uh, I would well. I want to make movies that um, get a theatrical release. I, I'm mm. a huge advocate for the cinematic experience, and you know, I I love going to the, the theater. I, I I love the community community feel of it. Like, there's nothing better than going to a Friday night movie uh, opening movie with you know 400 people, um, and the energy of the energy of the crowd is electrifying. And I, I love in this town that everyone claps, and you know, and you know, we're quite reserved in Australia. We're very kind of um, very British in that way, mm-hmm. and uh, this so, is a company town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so everyone's like, you know, is clapping and cheering, and 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 you really feel that um, that that spirit. And also, like the the uh, I love big thumping soundtracks, and you know, I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan's work in that regard. I like to play it as loud as can possibly, you know, can. What is you know, Spinal Tap put you know up to eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, so if I can, so if I can keep making movies that, that get a theatrical release and I, I'm, I'm happy. Um, but the basic prim- principles are the same for me and everything. Like it's, it's essentially, you know, you've got all the cool action and all the, the, the bells and the whistles that go along with a film like, of this nature. But really what it comes down to is like, you know, you've got a couple of actors in a room and a, and a camera and I'm selfishly a performance director and I try and make everything as real as I can for, for the actor because, they give that extra 10%, that extra 15% when they can feel or touch a wall. They can, you know, for instance, Pilu, you know, who plays Wafner, Pilu Aspect, um, 
he was in prosthetics makeup for five hours every day and then had to do a 10 hour day. And that was really uh, gratifying to, to see because the other actors were shit scared of him. It was real for them. Like that, he was terrifying. And if he had like a, if he had a green sock on his face or tracking markers or whatever and said, I'm scary, you know, believe me, I'm going to be scary in post. Uh, um, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel as real. And, and, and I guess, if I'm going to venture into bigger movies, you know, I just want to keep them as in camera and practical as possible. Um, you know, trying to, you know, have in camera do the heavy lifting and and CG do the uh, do the um, do the light work. That would be my goal if I continue to, you know, make these big event movies. That'll be an interesting challenge when you're in space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know. 2000, uh, 2001, you know. They, they, he, they, he figured out they, how to do you, it. You can, you can figure it out. Julius, I end every episode by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing that they've seen. I suspect that you are an, an avid film goer to this day. So what is the last great thing that you've seen? The last great thing I've seen? Um, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout was amazing. Um, that was like I saw that um, in the Dolby Theater and it blew me away. It's visceral. It's high impact. The intensity that 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 helicopter sequence in the end is like next level. It, you know, uh, I really loved like they took some really they did some really bold things. You know, like the um, the kind of imaginary sequence where you know Tom Cruise gets to kill a cop and so like, like it, there was some really great. Uh, moments in that movie, but it was it was it was such an event movie. And if I was allowed to ever be able to do a big action movie like that, I, I'd be picking shit. <laughs> we we love that movie on this show, so that's a great one, Julius. Thank you much for so much for doing this. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Big Picture. Please tune in next week when we'll be back with an Oscar show and maybe a top five show. We'll see how things shake out. And if you're looking for something to read, check out TheRinger.com. I have written about Netflix and their pursuit of prestige movies, which include Roma and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and also a movie that is out right now called Outlaw King. So check that out on TheRinger.com. See you next week. 